Hi, friends, and welcome to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast, where we discuss Bible prophecy from a pre-tribulational, premillennial, expositional, and rapture-ready point of view. This is Joel Dober. I'm the former professor of eschatology and dean of biblical studies at Calvary Chapel University, a local pastor for more than two decades, and a student of God's Word. I want to help you understand the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Grab your Bibles and let's dig deep. This is the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. This is your host, Joel Dover. So glad to have you on the program. As we get started today, I'd like to ask you to go ahead and to subscribe so that when we post new material, you can be updated and it will automatically download to your device. We'd also love it if you'd take a moment and share this podcast with someone you think might be interested in this material. And of course, we're looking at Bible prophecy through the lenses of a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial point of view. We believe that the rapture precedes the beginning of the tribulation, a seven-year literal period upon the earth, and that at the end of that uh, tribulation period, the Lord returns at the second coming And then, of course, inaugurates the millennium, a literal 1,000-year reign and rule of Christ upon the earth. So when we say that we're pre-tribulational, we're speaking of our rapture position, and pre-millennial, we are speaking, of course, of when we believe that Christ will return, the second coming of the Lord. Now, last time that we were together, we actually had a wonderful, wonderful time talking about imminence. We were discussing the doctrine of imminence, that is, that the New Testament absolutely, without question, teaches us that the return of Christ will be an imminent return. In other words, there are no signs, there are no warnings. It can happen at any time. And so clearly the doctrine of imminence is taught, and we look at some of the parables that we'll dig into a little deeper over the next few weeks, but from Matthew 25 in particular, uh, looking at parables which teach us to be watchful, to be ready. We were learning last time that the Scripture, again, speaking of imminence, talks about how when the Lord returns, that it'll be like the days of Noah. People will be going about their business, buying and selling. They'll be planning their particular uh, vacations, if you will, if you put it into our own modern vernacular, planning their own uh, celebrations, trips, family events, those kind of things. And then the Bible says, interestingly, that two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Just like that, folks, a moment. And then two women will be at the millstone. One will be taken and one will be left. And the Bible says that the Lord's return will come suddenly in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. So there is this doctrine of imminence that is taught in the lessons of Jesus and, of course, by the early church. And we learned last time as well that the Scripture speaks of imminence in relationship to the rapture. If you dig into the New Testament, you'll see that there are uh, really two returns of Jesus that are foretold. There is the imminent return, the rapture, where Jesus snatches away the New Testament church in preparation for the unveiling of a seven-year tribulation upon the earth. And then secondly, there is the second coming, which is preceded by all kinds of signs. And so when we look at the Bible, it's important for us to realize that certain texts teach imminence. Uh, Leading up to the return of Christ, other texts teach a number of signs, astronomical things, things like the sun no longer shining, the moon turning to blood, stars falling from the sky, great earthquakes. I mean, these things would be hard to miss, right? And, uh, And these, of course, precede the second coming of Christ. So 
we have one of two options. Either the Lord was talking out of both sides of his mouth here, saying on the, on the one hand, my return will be imminent. It will come without warning and suddenly. No one will know when it's going to happen. No one will know the day or the hour. And then out of the other side of his mouth saying, oh yes, but all of these signs will precede my coming. And these will be the things that will help you to recognize. And in fact, here's the exact number of days until my return, if you look at uh, Daniel's uh, prophecy. Uh, so e- either the Lord is speaking out of both sides of his mouth and saying two very different things, or he's speaking of two different returns, and that's the case. We see in the Bible that the first return, that is the rapture of the church, it's not a touching down, it's a gathering of the saints who are caught up. The word in the Greek, of course, is harpazod. We call it rapture, which is a Latin word. Uh, not in the original language of the Bible, but most commonly uh, the word that we use to speak of the snatching away of the New Testament church. But the rapture of the church is the calling away, the snatching up of believers who will meet the Lord in the air. The second coming is described in passages like Zechariah 14. And also, of course, in the book of Revelation, it follows a massive battle called Armageddon, which is also mentioned, of course, by the prophet Joel in his writings. And it is the touching down of Jesus on the Mount of Olives and the literal establishment of a reign and rule of Christ, which lasts 1,000 years. So when you're reading these passages in the New Testament, understand that when we read about the doctrine of imminence, we're speaking of imminence pertaining to the return of Jesus Christ at the rapture. And, of course, when we speak of the second coming, there are many signs that will precede that. There are many things that, that still must take place in the future before the Lord returns, if we're being honest with the Scripture. So it's a yes and a yes. It's not a one or the other. It's a yes and a yes. But if you don't realize that the Bible speaks of two returns, it'll be very confusing for you. Well, today we're going to get into uh, a lecture series. It'll take us several weeks to work through a couple of different passages. We'll be looking in uh, Matthew 24 today in some detail, but we'll also spend some time in some of the other New Testament texts. We'll get into the Thessalonian letters uh, and uh, Paul's writings, of course, to uh, young Timothy, who's pastoring the church at at, at Ephesus. And then we're going to look back at some of the Old Testament passages out of Ezekiel in particular, talking about signs of the times. And we'll probably reference again the book of Daniel, which gives us a couple of um, wonderful signs, Daniel 12, Daniel chapter 9, these kind of things. Uh, And of course, Daniel 7, which we've already talked about, the uh, European conglomeration, the coming together of revitalized Rome. So we'll we'll hit all of these things. But I want to just, you know, ask the question today, what are the signs of the times? If Jesus says that no one knows the day or the hour of his return, then how at least can we know that we're in the season of it, right? I mean, how can we know when we're getting close to it? Certainly, uh, the Bible would say something about that. And here, here's how I want you to think about it. When we when we take a trip with our kids, we'll be in the car for about 15 minutes. We could be on a 10-hour car drive, and 15 minutes in, the kids are going to start asking that magic question. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm about to say. Dad, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And so I'll say, no, we've got a ways. How much longer? Well, we've got a ways to go. 15 minutes up the road, Dad, are we there yet? Nope, we still got a ways to go. How much longer? Six more hours. Dad, are we there yet? And over and over and over. But I think that as we consider this question spiritually, this is a question that Jesus would have us to ask frequently about the soon return of the Lord to rapture his church. Jesus, are we there yet? 
And the reason that I think that the Lord would have us to ask that is because the Bible actually makes an investment. Jesus makes an investment in teaching in Matthew 24 to help us discern signs of the times. And then in other passages, through the writings of Paul in particular, in um, as we mentioned in the Thessalonian letters, and then of course it's also in Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there are many things uh, written there about the uh, coming of the Lord as well, but there are given to us in numerous New Testament biblical texts signs of the times, so that while it's true that as believers no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels, but the Father in heaven has reserved the day of his return as private information. He hasn't shared that. He's the only one who knows. Uh, we can look around and discern the general climate of what the world will be like just prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to do today as we look at Matthew chapter 24. And I'd like to spend the first 14 verses with you today as we begin to get into this text. And we'll probably spend, I don't know, two or three weeks looking at Matthew 24, and then, of course, um, in the midst of that, we're going to kind of integrate some of these other texts that I've been talking about. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to Matthew chapter 24 together, and I hope that you will take some notes as we uh, look at the signs of the times, as we think about the signs of the times, as we ask the question, are we there yet? Matthew 24. And so as we take up our text, I would just invite you, if you would, to turn back to chapter 21 and if your Bible is like mine, I'm using a uh, New King James study Bible. But if your Bible is anything like mine, it's real easy to just flip back to chapter 21. And there's a, an editorial heading that's there above chapter 21 that says the triumphal entry. And so in chapter 21, we see the triumphal of Jesus, a triumphal entry of Jesus. He comes into Jerusalem seated upon a donkey, a colt that's never been ridden. The people, of course, in the streets of Jerusalem... They take the palm branches down from the trees. They lay their coats out. They shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they praise him. And then Jesus goes down to the temple. Day one, he cleans uh, cleans house. He uh, cleanses the temple, if you will. And then if you just keep flipping through and do a quick scan, Jesus now begins to have encounters with religious leaders. He begins to teach in uh, parables. He has encounters with the Pharisees. Uh, and then we come up to chapter 24. Now, my point in this is very simply to help you understand the timing of the things that Jesus is about to teach us. Because as we get into Matthew chapter 24, it's Passion Week. It's the uh, day, uh, one of the days of, of Passion Week. We're not yet to the cross, but we're getting very close. Very soon, if you just fl keep flipping forward, you'll get to chapter 26 and you'll see the uh, agreement of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, and then, of course, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, the arrest in the garden, the crucifixion, the burial in uh, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and then, of course, Resurrection Sunday. So we're in Passion Week as we pick up this instruction, and I think it helps us to realize this is the end of the Lord's ministry. He's speaking very important things, knowing that he is about to leave the earth. He's about to uh, leave his disciples. He won't be uh, there to instruct them any longer face-to-face. And so he's pouring into their lives in a very specific way. When will these things be? Are we there yet? So let's just begin to read Matthew chapter 24, and uh, we'll read a few verses, and then we will uh, stop and make some commentary. Now, they've been down to uh, the Temple Mount, and they're coming, of course, coming out of the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus and the disciples uh, are passing by the Temple Mount. 
The Bible says in verse 1, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. So they've been there at the temple, of course. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Remember that in the days of Jesus, the temple was still under construction. And so things were frequently changing there. Um, There were all the time new things coming about. And so they're taking a survey of the temple. Verse 2, And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So the words of Jesus prophesying that the temple that they're looking at in Matthew 24, verse 1, it's temporary. It's not going to stand forever. Jesus said, look at all these things. Not a single stone shall be left here. The whole thing is going to be destroyed. And then we get into verse 3, and there are actually three questions here in verse 3. We're going to begin looking at really the first of these questions. And uh, uh, Jesus, in asking three questions, he asked one, uh, the disciples ask a question that gets ignored. And then the disciples ask uh, two other questions that Jesus will answer. So I I realized I wasn't very clear with that, but let me just just read it for you. And uh, you can see what I'm talking about. The Bible says, now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they began to speak. So they come down from the Temple Mount. They cross the Kedron Valley. The Mount of Olives is, of course, opposite of that. They go up there, which is a frequent resting place for Jesus and the disciples. And the disciples now want to have a private conversation with Jesus. And they say, again, verse 3, tell us, when will these things be? Now, that's question number one. Question number one, when will these things be? Well, what things? What things is Jesus? Uh, what things are the disciples talking about? What things has Jesus been discussing? Well, again, if you, if you look at this in context, you back up here to what Jesus just said in verse 2. Jesus has just prophesied that the temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be standing upon another. And so they come out of the temple mount, cross the valley. Now they're in... Uh, the vicinity of the Mount of Olives, they come to him privately, Lord, when will these things be? When will the destruction of this temple take place? When is there going to be this uh, cataclysmic event that takes place in Jerusalem? They add to their question about the destruction of the temple two more questions, and this is where we want to focus in on our study uh, today and probably next week and maybe the week after that, we'll see. But the question continues there in verse 3. They said, tell us when will these things be? That's question 1. And then they asked, and what will be the sign of your coming? That's question 2. And then here's question 3, and of the end of the age. Now, as we get into those two final questions, that's where we're going to be focusing our attention today. It's interesting that Jesus ignores the first question altogether. When they asked him, Lord, when will these things be? In other words, when will the temple be destroyed? He ignores that question altogether. The only thing that I could think, friends, is that perhaps Jesus realizes, knowing the end from the beginning, that soon enough they'll have the answer. And why get them distracted from the work of the ministry, distracted from the Great Commission, worrying about the the, the, uh, overthrow of Rome and the destruction of uh, the, the, the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that is to take place Uh, As we know now, looking in the rearview mirror, in 70 AD, when the Romans ransacked and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So uh, I I think, this is is me, this is not the Bible, this is Pastor Joel. I just think that Jesus probably assumes you're going to find out the answer to that soon enough, and I don't want you to be focused on uh, the coming temporal destruction of this monument, this 
temple. I want you to be focused on kingdom things and ministry things, and that's exactly what happens. So Jesus actually ignores that first question. He never gives them any kind of inkling about when the temple will be destroyed, when those stones of the temple will be cast down, not one standing upon another, according to verse 2. And he begins to focus his attention on these other two questions. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I want you to see this as two questions. You're really going to get confused with chapter 24 if you fail to see these as two separate questions. And I want to point out just the key phrases, sign of your coming, and then second phrase, end of the age. Because as we read through, beginning, really getting into verse 15 and onward, Jesus is going to use those key phrases to help us understand which question that he's answering. But basically, if you think about the questions, we would phrase it like these things. What's the timing, Lord? What's the timing or... Um, you know, the, again, going back to it, the, 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 the timing of the end of the age. And then what are going to be the signs of your coming? Okay. In other words, how will we recognize the times when we're reaching the end and the times when you're going to return? And then interestingly enough, in the first part of chapter 24, all the way from verse four down to verse 14, Jesus begins to speak about the signs of the times. How will we know the general climate of the world? How will we know that we're getting close to the Lord's return? How will we discern that we're getting close to the Lord's uh, appearing to rescue his church, to take his church out? How, how do we know when we're getting close to the tribulation period? And so really, as we go through here, the Lord gives us at least eight clear signs. And that's what I want to do today is focus on eight signs of the time so that we as believers would be able to discern the nearing of the day of the Lord and so that we would not live unaware. Let's read this passage together very quickly. Verse 4, the Bible says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Don't you love that passage? Take heed that no one deceives you. The Lord does not desire for his people to be deceived. He wants us to have knowledge and not be deceived. The enemy is a deceiver. Jesus said, take heed that no one deceives you. Verse 5, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. All right, now... I want you to just note something very important in verse 6. As the Bible begins to speak of these signs of the time, Jesus answers the question. Remember, they were asking two questions. What's the sign of your coming? And then what are the signs of the end of the age? Jesus begins to talk of the end of the age here. He's answering the second question first. Why? Because he's not a college professor. He's not giving a, le a, a, a lecture. He's having a conversation with his friends on the side of a mountain 
And he answers in conversational tone, just like we do. If someone asks you three or four questions, you may not take them in the exact order that they're asked. And so Jesus does the same thing. But in verse 6, as he's speaking about these signs of the times, he says, all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So the Lord now begins to answer their question about the signs of his coming, the signs of the end of the age, by speaking about the general climate of what the world is going to be like before the end comes. This is what it will look like before the end. This precedes the end. This is uh, the time of sorrows, what, what the Bible calls the beginning of sorrows. And so the scripture speaks of this in terms of birth pains. If you think about having a child, some of you ladies who are listening, you've had children, you know that labor pains begin and they increase over time, both in intensity and in frequency. And Jesus is speaking this way. This is the beginning of sorrows. These are the beginning of the birth pains. We're going to see more and more of these kind of things increasing in intensity and in frequency as we near the end. But these things are not the end. It's the climate leading up to the end, the beginning of sorrows. Well, let's consider these. If we look at verse 5, we see sign number 1. And this is the rise of false religion. It's interesting again. Look at verse 5. The Bible says, Many will come in my name, saying I am the Christ, and will deceive many. I want you to pause right there. Now, gang, there are really two ways that we could take this particular passage. And for many years, I looked at this and I thought, well, Jesus is predicting the rise of false religions and false messiahs, and certainly that very well could be exactly what Jesus intended in this text. If we look at our world today, we know that the world is full of cult groups and full of false religion. In fact, I don't mind sharing with you, over the past year, as a pastor, I've encountered more onslaught of false religion, doctrines of demons, false doctrines that have tempted to pull away the people of God from orthodox biblical truth than I have in the previous two decades. It's just been a time, listen, in my own ministry, a time of the rise of false religion that seeks to deceive true believers. Remember, Jesus said, I desire that no one deceive you. There's this implicit idea that these things would be deceptions that seek to influence actual Christians who know the Lord and who are born again to pull them away from the blessings of walking with Jesus. And so it may very well be that in the last days there'll be a rise of false religion and of false messiah, uh, messiahs, a time that Jesus characterizes as a time when believers are moving away from the truth of following the one true God into following deceptive errors, following false religions, following false messiahs. Uh, there's absolutely a clear and present warning here that believers shouldn't be deceived by the rise of false religion, false doctrines, doctrines of demons, false messiahs, because he says here, many will come in my name and will deceive many. And so that's absolutely one way to look at this. A second way to interpret this passage, and the Lord showed me this uh, a number of months ago. It changed my thinking on this particular verse a little. Take Again, take heed that no one deceives you. Verse 5, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. There are many today, as we think about uh, pulpits, as we think about TV, radio ministries, there are many today who acknowledge and who publicly confess that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, who have false doctrines, who deceive, who are um, uh, errant in their theology, errant in their doctrine. And yet they claim, listen, they claim 
uh, Jesus is the Christ. There are many who affirm that reality, but once they've affirmed that reality, deceive and pull Christians away from Orthodox biblical truth into all kinds of uh, different errors. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here about the rise of the prosperity gospel. I'm thinking about the rise of social justice gospel. And there are all kinds of different movements that are uh, across our land today and on the landscape of the church. You, you know, it's interesting. We live in a day and age now that if someone says, I'm a Christian, you, you just can't take for granted what that means. In fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at a brand new study from our friend uh, George Barna out of Arizona Christian University and the Christian Research Center that he leads there. And every year they do a Christian worldview study. It's so interesting. This year, new research from Barna's group indicates that among uh, people who claim to be Christians, that really only a fraction of those have a biblical worldview at all. So if someone says, I'm a Christian, and even among pastors, by the way, pastors and church leaders, if a pastor, if you run into somebody who says, I'm a Christian pastor, the likelihood of them not having a biblical worldview, that is not holding to biblical orthodoxy, is like two to one. In other words, like one in every three pastors that you're going to encounter out here actually, according to the research, has a biblical worldview. And so, again, the idea of people saying, yes, Jesus is the Lord, affirming the deity of Christ, Jesus is the Lord, but then, as the Scripture says, deceiving many with false doctrines, many coming in the name of Jesus, I am a follower of God, Jesus is the Lord, but then teaching things that are aberrant doctrines is of one of the prophecies here and the first sign of the times that we're getting close to the return of Christ. So, uh, if there ever was a time, listen, if there ever was a time when the renewal of the systematic study of the scriptures was needed in our churches, when we needed to be teaching doctrine and teaching the Bible, listen, I don't want to offend anyone, but the time for a funny joke and uh, three points in a poem, uh, man, that might have worked 20 years ago. But right now, what we need is systematic Bible teaching, systematic teaching of the Word of God. We need to help our church become literate in the Bible, we need to be intentional about teaching Bible doctrine. If there was ever a time when we needed a, a renewal of the Word of God and a doctrine of Jesus, orthodox doctrines, it is now. So listen, sign number one. As we get close to the, to the return of Christ, to the rapture of the church, watch for the rise of false religion and false leaders as an indicator of the nearness of Christ. And it may be that we're looking at those within the church who's, who are pastors and teachers who say, Jesus is the Christ and I come in the name of God, but who are teaching something different than a biblical worldview and biblical orthodoxy. Now, sign number two. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 6 and 7 again. Let's reference the scripture. The Bible says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Okay, so sign number two, we're going to have an increase in the rumors of war and global con conflict. I just want to encourage you, if you have not been watching the news, even this week, there are all kinds of rumors about uh, China and Taiwan and ramping up military um, tensions between the U.S. And, of course, there are all kinds of things happening 
uh, in the world that you're full aware of, the Russia and Ukraine conflict, which is huge right now and has been for a number of months. And then, of course, the involvement of the Middle East and uh, new alliances in the Middle East, in particular between Russia and Turkey and Iran. There are all kinds of interesting things happening in regards to the rise of rumors about global conflict. Now, Jesus similarly notes that in the last days, as we get close to his return, there's going to be, listen, there's going to be an increase in the rumors about war. And we're going to hear of more and more wars. There will actually be an increase of war and global conflict and rumors about such things. Now, I want you to just think for a moment, because our New Testaments are 2,000 years old, give or take, And it's interesting to think about the vast difference in perspective between how the original recipients of this teaching must have thought about war and the rise of nations versus our modern audience. You know, back then they were certainly thinking in terms of swords and spears and chariots. And of course, in our day, we're talking about terms of nuclear weapons and aircraft carriers and jets and drones and all kinds of things, cruise missiles, (laughs) man. And and, then add to that the rise of technology. Like no other time in history, we have the ability to know what rumors of war are raging across the sea. I mean, if you're standing there at the Mount of Olives 2,000 years ago, you, you really would have had to you know, hear from a courier or something what was happening in, a, in another part of the world. But now we live in a day where on our smartphones, you can look at Drudge Report or you can look at your, uh, your news app or whatever it might be, and you can see a conglomeration of all of these things taking place the rumors of wars across the sea, and things are happening technologically so quickly that, uh, quite frankly, uh, you see it, you learn about it on the other side of the world just minutes after something happens, uh, you know, across the way. So we have this kind of instantaneous communication that affords us today a global perspective that's emerged in the past 30 years and that our ancestors, even our parents and grandparents that we're watching black and white TVs or listening to things on the radio that they didn't even enjoy. We now read the latest developments of, on news servers uh, that are loc- coming right from the actual areas of global conflict, and we see them right here on our computers or, or our uh, smartphones. It's just, just <laughs> amazing that something can happen in Russia or Turkey or Syria or China or in Taiwan, and we watch it happen live. It's just absolutely crazy. So sign number two there will be an increase in global conflict, which implies an increase in globalism, and there will be an increase in the rumors of wars and rumors of wars. This week, uh, two interesting articles came across my desk. I was looking at one uh, that was talking, it was a, a news article from the United Nations talking about how one small misstep right now in the tensions that are happening globally, one small misstep could plunge us into a global nuclear war. There are big concerns about that right now. You may not have known that, but huge concerns about that right now among many people across the globe. And then the second article that came across this week was a prediction from MIT that society as we know it will collapse by the year 2040 and that we'll just bring ourselves right to the brink. So listen, these these things are definitely in the news cycle. Am I saying that we're, that we're right at the end? I'm saying that it looks to me like Um, the shoe fits, the rise of false religion, sign number one, and sign number two, increase in global conflict. But again, 
No one knows the date or the hour except the Lord. The best we can do is try to discern the climate of the times and stay on mission, serving Jesus, making disciples. Let's talk about sign number three. Sign number three comes out of Matthew 24 and verse 7, where again, going back to the text, the Bible says, For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That really kind of goes with the previous point. And then here it is. The Bible says, And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And so what we see is that there's going to be, sign number three, unusual weather phenomenon. Jesus indicates that as we get to the climate that precedes the last days, the climate that precedes the end, okay, this is, in my view, leading up to the rapture, that there's going to be an increase in unusual weather phenomenon. Look again at what we just read, verse 7 there are going to be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. So we're going to see um, these three things specifically named earthquakes, and we're certainly seeing a rise of that. And then famines, that is where you know there's a lack of food in various places. I'm thinking about <laughs> thinking about the uh, empty shelves in our grocery stores and all the warnings that we've been receiving over the past few weeks and months about shortages and and supply. I'll be honest with you and tell you that. At my house, I planted a garden this past year, and I have been saving everything that comes out of the garden, not in fear, just in preparation for what could come as we move into a potential season of scarcity from this kind of famine. It's not the end, but the end is coming. And then the Bible predicts pestilences as indicated, uh, in, as indicative of the last day's threshold. So uh, as we think about earthquakes, let's add to that just in our own imaginations, this is not specifically in the Bible, but just thinking about kind of earthquakes as a catch-all term for um, interesting weather phenomenon. Let's think about all the rise of the talk of climate change and environmentalism that have been topics of interest in recent days. It seems like the past number of election cycles, climate change has been huge. Uh, we've just come through a summer where, uh, if you've been watching the news uh, we've had like record heat wave days in Europe and then here in our own country, the United States. Uh, we've been experiencing record heat wave as well. Believe me, I know we're in a mobile church. I was unloading a trailer Sunday mornings in 110 heat index in uh, July. So um, just think about how those things could possibly play together. And then, of course, numbers of people would agree that strange things are happening in the weather cycle. Uh, you know, the rise of uh, tsunamis has been big in the past year, earthquakes, tornadoes. Our own church was destroyed with a tornado, an F4 tornado last year. So look, even if people disagree on the cause of these things, I know that there are believers that um, do not believe that climate change is real. They believe that's a political agenda. I understand that there are different points of view on the existence of climate change or its cause, whether it's man-made or not. I understand that. I understand that as you're listening to this podcast that you may have a very different point of view than someone else sitting in the car next to you who may be listening to this same broadcast. But understand that what we all agree on is that things are changing. We all recognize that things are changing. We all recognize that tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires. Got any friends in California lately? I just had a friend that canceled a trip out, out west because uh, they didn't want to deal with the smoke of the California wildfires. We all agree that, uh, and it's, it's clear that the ice caps are melting. I mean, these things are actually taking place, whatever interpretation 
you put on it as the actual source, these things are on the list. So when Jesus talks about weather phenomenon, interesting weather phenomenon, we're seeing that happen. And then, of course, when the Lord speaks here of pestilence and famine, gang, the last two years, two and a half years of our life has been consumed by pestilence. Coronavirus is a pestilence. It fits the definition to a T. And now, of course, we're hearing about the rise of monkeypox, and uh, which would be interesting to see how kind of where that things go, but uh, that thing goes. But we're definitely seeing this kind of thing happen. Am I saying it's the last days? Am I saying that the return of Christ is around the corner? Well, I'm saying that I believe that we're near to the return of Christ. I would say that I believe that we're seeing some of these signs, but again, no one knows the day or the hour. Let's talk about sign number four. Sign number four is the tribulation and persecution of the saints. I want to just take you to verse nine. The Bible says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, one of the qualities that we see in Bible prophecy, and this is true especially in Old Testament Bible prophecy, also in the New Testament, is that often there's like an immediate fulfillment of a, a bigger prophetic idea. So obviously we know that the apostles that received this word, that they were persecuted. All but one of them, as we look back at the historical record, was martyred for their faith, martyred for being followers of Jesus Christ. And John, of course, was exiled to the island of Patmos, according to tradition, where he lived out his life there in isolation. But we know that these men were absolutely martyred. They were tribulation, uh, you know, went through tribulation as followers of Jesus Christ. But in that far fulfillment, what's interesting is that that near fulfillment in the days when this was written, it points to the future fulfillment, the future worsening of it. And just as Old Testament prophecy did, where there's often like an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy, which validates its long-term meaning, I believe that's what we're seeing here. I believe that we're seeing here the uh, prophecy, if you will, the forecast that in the last days, we're going to see a rise of uh, Christian persecution and tribulation specifically for Christians. Now, even before the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, the Lord taught his disciples there was going to be tribulation for those who followed him. Every believer throughout all of history has lived with the reality that, look, if we're going to follow Jesus, it's not always going to be sunshine and roses. Jesus said, in this life, you're going to have tribulation. But be a good cheer. I've overcome the world. He said, anyone who desires to live a godly life will face persecution. Look, this is common to all believers but what the Lord is speaking of here is something different. This is a last day's climate that is really quite different. The being delivered up to tribulation, the martyrdom, the murder of the saints, and then being hated by all nations because of Jesus' name. Being hated by the nations because of Jesus' name. I would just encourage you to do a little research. And I think if you maybe look at Voice of the Martyrs or some of these similar websites that talk about the rise of Christian martyrdom, I think that you're going to find that what I'm telling you is true. We live in a day where there is more Christian persecution on the planet today than has ever existed at any time up to this moment. There's more Christian persecution today than there was in the first century in the Roman Empire. And so go go and check me on that. Just look it up. Go, go and look it. Go and look at that. But what happens is, of course, when persecution breaks out, when Christians are dealing with the unbearable realities of things like Christian be, be, beheadings 
and displacement of believers from their homes and community, with uh, Christians being uh, threatened with violence, when uh, human slavery and sex trafficking of, of Christian women living in countries that are hostile, you know, these kinds of things. We, when we see these things that are actually happening, the hatred of believers by the nations, the rise of hatred of believers because we follow Jesus Christ, this is a sign of the climate of the last days. It's not the end, but as we get closer to the end, Christians will be persecuted. Uh, Persecution will increase just as it is increasing, just as it has increased to levels like we've never seen before, and Christians will be hated like never never before. That brings us to a related sign, and that's sign number five. We find here in the Scripture that Christianity becomes an offense. Once you look at verse 10, uh, Scripture says, And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Uh, I want you to realize that in the West, a shift has occurred. In our country, uh, a shift has occurred. And, of course, it hit Europe long before it hit us. But a shift has occurred in we're seeing fewer and fewer people involved in church. We're seeing more people engaging in alternative lifestyles. Uh, more people embracing uh, points of view which are not biblical points of view. The biblical worldview is becoming smaller and smaller. Uh, we live in times where um, absolutes, moral absolutes, uh, based on the re- revelation of a creator, based on unchanging, immutable uh, personality of God, uh, that's no longer really the prevalent point of view. We we now have a cultural viewpoint in our nation, that morality is defined by what's accepted as, as normative by a community or by an individual, and that we do not answer to a higher authority. And of course, the result of that is, listen, the result of that is that when Christians stand up for Bible-believing values, when we say we believe the Bible to be the authority we believe there is absolute right and wrong. We believe that there's no gray area, that Jesus said, God said this or that. There's right, there's wrong. Uh, when we when we talk about that, when we don't have shifting relative morals, we stand out as people who appear in that kind of culture to be bigoted and to be closed-minded and to be judgmental. And that certainly describes the way that I'm hearing Christians being described in my culture, which has traditionally been the kind of culture where the church has been respected, where pastors have been respected. I'm in the Deep South. I'm in the Bible Belt. But man, I'm telling you, things are changing. Things are changing. Even right here in the Bible Belt, things are changing. We're now in a day and age where it's more difficult for Christians who believe the Bible is the authority in all matters of faith and practice to stand in culture without facing judgment and scorn. Cancel culture. Hello? Cancel culture. Uh, Now we live in this kind of environment where culture does whatever feels good, where we're standing up and celebrating the things which God says are wrong. And when Christians take a stand and say, even lovingly, now I know Christians don't always say things lovingly, that's to our shame, but when Christians even stand and say lovingly, listen, I love God and I believe in right and wrong and I'm not attacking anyone, but I believe in moral truth and I believe that this is right and this is wrong. Even when we say that, we're being attacked as bigoted and hateful. And uh, again, we live in a day and age where when something is wrong and evil, it's being celebrated as good. And when Christians try to stand for what is good and right before an immutable, unchanging God, we're being characterized in the world as evil and closed-minded and 
bigoted. So Jesus said that Christianity would become an offense. And so in light of this teaching, Christians that are living in the period of time leading up to the last days, we should expect that the last days are going to bring acceptance and embrace of behaviors in the culture which directly conflict with what the Lord says is good. It'll be like in the days of Isaiah, there will be those who call evil good and good evil. And Christians, listen, again, getting back to the Bible, Christians need to be anchored in the truth of God's word in these days so that we can stay on track with it and please our God and not shift with the culture. Let's not forget that the world is watching, but so is the Lord And he's taught us to expect the world to be offended by our assertions of things like moral and ethical absolutes based on the revelation of the person of God and based, of course, on the authority of God's word. And that brings us to sign number six. Sign number six comes out of Matthew chapter 24 and verse 11. And we see here the rise of false prophets. The Bible says, of course, verse 10, many will be offended, betray each other, and will hate one another. So rise of betrayals and hatreds. As a part of that offense we've been discussing, and then verse 11, many false prophets will rise up and will deceive many. The rise of false prophets. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said that as we get close to the end, as we, we're not at the end yet, but as we're leading up to the end, as we're leading up to the time of what I believe is the rapture, that we're going to see the rise of false prophets. Now, as the language suggests, their message is false. But gang, here's what we know. We know that every good lie contains an element of truth. What does a prophet do? A prophet tries to be the mouthpiece of God. A prophet is one who says they speak for God. A prophet says, thus saith the Lord, and then gives a message that they believe is given from God, and they're acting as an intermediary between God and his people. And so Jesus says, in the last days, there can be a lot of false prophets arise. There are going to be a lot of people who say, I speak for God, who say, I have a word from God, who say, God told me, and then they're going to share their prophecies, and Jesus says they are false prophets. You know, it's been so interesting over the past couple of years to uh, watch some of the things that my uh, friends, and of course I have friends in all different parts of the family of God, all kinds of different denominations and different points of view, but to watch some of my friends who are kind of enthralled with this modern prophecy movement, post certain messages from so-called prophets. And it's been amazing to see how many of those prophecies two years ago were about how the election would be overturned and Donald Trump would return to the White House and uh, how uh, uh, you know Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi would be exposed as uh, frauds and how you know big things would be uncovered in the country. And none of that's happened. Ladies and gentlemen, in the Old Testament, if you delivered false prophecy, they would take you outside of the camp and they would stone you for being a false prophet. That we had that kind of reverence when when we say, thus says the Lord. Hey, I just want to warn you, if you're a preacher, if you're a teacher out there, if, if you're one of these so-called prophets, let me tell you, if you say, thus says the Lord, you better make sure the Lord has thus said it. Let me just throw that out there. Now, Jesus said that in the last days, there would be those preachers, perhaps church leaders, those on TV, who knows, who will say that they have a word from God, but their message will not adhere to sound doctrine. So as we get closer to the last days, look for false teachers who do something very important. They substitute the clear, authoritative teaching of the Bible 
with an alleged word from God, with a prophetic word. There'll be an emphasis on the prophetic word over the written word. And that prophetic word, maybe it comes in the form of self-help or pop psychology, motivational speaking, or just outright, I have a word from God. And don't be surprised if they are revealed within uh, certain corners, even mainstream portions of the Christian church. So be on alert from this and get into the Word of God. Stay into the Word of God. Let me just say this. If you ever hear anyone who says, I have a word from God and it contradicts what God has already written in in the Holy Bible, then disregard the prophet. Prophecy will not contradict. No word from God will contradict what the Lord has already said in His Word. So that brings us to sign number seven. And we want to hit number seven and eight and then wrap up our teaching today. Thank you for hanging with us here and being so patient. But as we get into sign number seven, the Bible says that lawlessness will abound in abundance. Look at verse 12. Jesus said, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And we're going to split that verse in two. We're going to talk about lawlessness and then sign number eight will be about uh, love growing cold. So sign number seven, lawlessness will prevail in abundance. Now, by its very nature, what does law do? Law seeks to govern the behaviors of man. In our culture, we have certain laws, and men are subjected to the authority that's vested in the law. And of course, the authority of that law is rooted in external authorities and not in the individual self. In other words, man doesn't get to make up his own law. We live in a culture where we were born into certain laws and where God has established authorities over us that are not us, external authorities, to determine what the law shall be. And of course, when we're talking about uh, whether it's civil law or religious law or uh, law of a certain community. We have an HOA community where I live, and uh, they seem to have their own rules and their own laws, certainly, outside of civil government, whether it's a community collective law. Law creates a standard and authority over those who are governed by it. So the reason that I can't have an upright freezer or an extra washing machine on my front porch is because the HOA says uh, that's against the law in this neighborhood. Now, Jesus says lawlessness will abound. What's lawlessness? Well, lawlessness, as described by Jesus, would seemingly indicate an era where people reject the authorities that have traditionally governed them and instead seek to do what seems right in their own eyes. Lawlessness is another word for rebellion, and it naturally extends from a humanistic worldview, the idea that I'm my own God, I'm in charge of me, I'll do what I want to do. Who are you to tell me what uh, you know what I should do? And then, of course, enter the culture and DNA which we live in, the defund the police movement, uh, and movements like these, sanctuary cities where we have lawlessness abounding, uh, you know, interestingly enough, again, the things that we're reading in the scriptures seem, seem to just be kind of fitting the culture that we're living in. So look, uh, lawlessness rejects the idea that anybody else has the moral right to tell me what to do. And lawlessness opens Pandora's box to unleash all kinds of behaviors previously unaccepted by authoritative law. I'll do what feels good. I'll do what I want to do. Who are you to tell me what I should do? And lawlessness leads to the abolishment of lawful absolutes, embraces that paradox that right and wrong become relevant to situations, cultures, and circumstances, and without absolutes. So listen, 
the Bible tells us, look for an increase of lawlessness, people casting off the restraint of authority, people doing what is right in their own eyes, people making their own decision regardless of uh, the authorities that the Lord has established, and look for an attitude in the culture of uh, resistance to law, resistance to authority, uh, rebellion, if you will, open rebellion against authority, a who are you to tell me what to do kind of attitude. And then lastly, and we've already read the verse, sign number eight, love will grow cold. Jesus said that as the last days grow near, of course, it's not the end, but as we get close to the end, Jesus indicated that there would be a noticeable cooling of the hearts of men. Again, look at verse 12, Matthew 24, verse 12, lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold. This seems to be a reaction to the increase in lawlessness, but we're going to see love get smaller and smaller. There'll be a universal cooling of love, if you will. Now, Jesus is not suggesting there won't be any love in the world. In fact, one of the reasons that I enjoy being a part of the church in this era is because the church is a place where we're still loving God and still loving people. There's a brotherhood, there's a fellowship, there's a kindredness in the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't suggesting that love goes away altogether. No, we would hope that all these things that are rooted in a relationship with Jesus, the love of God, uh, Christ's love for the world would compel us as Christians to love one another and even to love our enemies. But Jesus absolutely suggests that as we think about the globe, as we think about the world, that there be a there will be a noticeable cooling as a result of the lawlessness that will come. It seems to me, as I'm understanding the scripture, that as people move towards absolute self-government, as people reject external authorities, as they reject right and wrong, we move to a self-centered kind of mentality, uh, a... Um, a, a me-centered culture, okay, that moves in the opposite direction from the Christian ideals of serving others, of putting others first, of considering others as greater than yourself. We move to a me. Let me get mine. Uh, don't stand in my way. I'm going to, man, I'm due. I deserve mine. As we move into that kind of self-centeredness, humility dies, considering others as greater than ourself dies. Similar principles that Jesus spoke of dies, that love in itself gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, we've looked at these eight signs of the times. Next time we're together, we're going to continue probably in the Thessalonian letters looking at signs within the church uh, as we get to the end days. But I want to just wrap up here in Matthew 24 in verse 13 and 14. The Bible says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Salvation is still available in the midst of this. What would God have us to do? Well, he says in verse four, take heed that no one deceives you. And he says here in verse 13 that we are to endure to the end and that we will be saved. Christian, you've just got to push through this. We, I believe that we're promised to be spared from the great tribulation. I believe the rapture comes before the tribulation period. We're not in the tribulation. That hasn't begun yet. But that doesn't mean that we won't encounter difficult days as we're in the beginning of sorrows, as we're leading up to that. We'll experience some of those birth pains leading up to the rapture of the church when Jesus comes to snatch away believers from the earth. And then verse 14 tells us, again, thinking about moving to the very end of, the, of, of it all, the end of the 70th week of Daniel, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So think back about the questions. They asked uh, when the temple will be destroyed. Jesus ignores that. 
And then question number two, what will be the sign of your coming? Question three, what is the sign of the end of the age? Well, one of the signs of the end is the global propagation of the gospel. And friends, that's one of the things we ought to be involved in. Let's remember to be sharing Jesus. Let's tell people about the wonderful love of God through Jesus Christ, who came in the form of a servant, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a perfect and sinless life, and who at the right time in history climbed upon the cross at Calvary, where God poured out upon his shoulders the just punishment and wrath that you and I and all others deserve for our sin and for our rebellion. And then Jesus, having borne our sin debt, being crucified, was buried. And then on the third day, he rose in victory over sin and death and hell. And the Bible tells us that he is sitting now at the right hand of God, preparing a place for us. And if we shall but repent of our sins and trust in the Lord by faith, believe upon the Lord by faith, receiving his gift, the free gift of salvation, that we shall be saved. And so let us share that message, repentance and faith, the message of the cross, the resurrection. Let us share that with our friends, neighbors, relatives, and I pray that you'll be in a church that shares the gospel, teaches the gospel often, and of course, teaches you the Bible. Well, I thank you for listening. I know it's been a longer episode than typical, but I thank you for listening, and it's been a joy to be with you. May the Lord richly bless you. Uh, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, to share the podcast with a friend, and I look forward to reading all of your comments. So please give us feedback on the podcast, and thank you again for being a part of the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. May the Lord bless you richly. Have a great day. Bye-bye.